Christians above all people should be thankful. And Christians above all else should be thankful. And thankful hearts, writes Sam Crabtree, thankful hearts do not use small measuring cups. We have lots to be thankful for. One of the commands that the Lord Jesus gives to us even involves coming to his Thanksgiving table. The gravitational center of our life as Christians is Thanksgiving. The Lord's Supper is sometimes called the Eucharist. That's not because, as the Church of Rome falsely teaches, there's something mysterious and incarnational here, or meritorious and forgiving. That's not true. But the word Eucharist is called that because the word word does mean thanksgiving. The word appears in the apostolic record in 1 Corinthians 11, where we read these words, on the night he was betrayed, he gave thanks. Or, Eucharistesas. There's the word. It just means give thanks. So the Lord's Supper is the Thanksgiving meal of the Christian family. It is his Thanksgiving table that he provides for us, that he calls us to, because he wants to mark us out and remind us that Christians above all people should be thankful people, that Christians above all else should be thankful And if we forget that, do this in remembrance of me. This is my thanksgiving table for you. So we come around this table this morning with all of our differences deep and wide because we share in the forgiveness of grace alone, through Christ alone, received and embraced through faith alone. Remember that men and women before us have died to guard the good deposit of the gospel so that it could be handed down to us for us to treasure, guard, and continue to hand down. So before us is the meal of Thanksgiving, reminding us, too, of the the familial nature, of the corporate nature of our lives together. You are not meant to be alone. You came to Christ in an individual decision, but as soon as you did, you were placed into a family and now our lives are centered on the righteous life and the sacrificial death and the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and we do this in remembrance of him we do this not you individually but we take this together because we remember who we are and whose we are we are people of the risen king we have been redeemed not with sawdust cakes and prune juice but we have been redeemed with the bread of life and with the wine of rich salvation. We are indwelt by the third person of the Holy Spirit. We are co-heirs with the Son of God. We are indwelt by the third person of the Trinity, co-heirs of Jesus, awaiting a new heaven and new earth where we all will always be with the Lord. And we say, even so, come quickly. Lord Jesus, and as often as you eat this bread and you take this cup, you preach about my death until I come back so that you will be always with me. So this morning, Emmanuel Bible Church, we are called to give thanks. We have much to be thankful for. So we are thinking this morning of Thanksgiving. 
for lots of reasons. But culturally, Thanksgiving Day is just days away. We've come a long way since the first Thanksgiving of our pilgrim forefathers in the fall of 1621. And I was schooled a little bit this morning on the history of that by Gary Matson. And if you want what really went down, talk to Gary Matson and Tom Bastoni, because Gary told me they were there when it happened. <laughs> they grew up there and they were there is what I was told. Now, I may not get all this right, but the, the, our, the pilgrim forefathers left everything behind and they endured hardships on the high sea in a small ship and death and desolation, the first harsh winter, all in many respects, so that we could, they could worship the Lord according to his word from a pure conscience without the threat of persecution. And we certainly can be thankful to God for them in part, for what they desired, we have all enjoyed in this room every day of our life, worshiping God according to his word with a pure conscience. So we can say, Lord, Thank you for what you have done. We can also be thankful that we will probably enjoy a different meal than they did that first Thanksgiving in the fall of 1621. Best the historians can piece together, the Thanksgiving meal had few of our modern day favorites. There was no pumpkin pie or pecan pie. There was no oven. There was no cranberry sauce as there was no sugar and there was no sweet potato, whatever your family calls it, because sweet potatoes were not native to North America and couldn't be found at the time. So we can be thankful that, 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 that we can enjoy turkey and gravy and stuffing and they didn't enjoy any of that. Now, Nathaniel Philbrick written a book called Mayflower, a story of courage, community and war describes what the pilgrims did have were ducks and geese. The meal they had probably included fish and perhaps even eel. Yummy for Thanksgiving, eel. And they mixed it with vegetables such as turnips. Again, yummy, turnips and eel. Edward Winslow, one of the pilgrim settlers, tells us in his eyewitness account that they had harvested their crops and Governor William Bradford ordered four men to go fowling, F-O-W-L-I-N-G, so that they could rejoice together in a more special manner. In just a few days, the hunters had, had secured enough ducks and geese to last for a week. But what began as an English affair soon became an overwhelmingly native international celebration. Earlier that spring, the Wampanoag people and their leader Massasoit had come offering peace and teaching them how to get the food that they needed. And that fall at this time, Massasoit arrived in Plymouth with 90 of his people and five freshly killed deer. And instead of the prim and proper sit-down affair of legend that makes for nice pictures that are nice to see, the first Thanksgiving was an outdoor festival. And even all the pilgrim furniture, whatever they had, was brought out into the sunshine. Most of them stood or squatted or sat, clustered around fires with the deer and the birds turned on wooden spits. Now, Winslow makes no mention of this, but the first Thanksgiving coincided with what was for the pilgrims, I imagine, a new startling phenomena, the season of a New England fall. The green leaves of summer turned to incandescent yellows, and reds and purples of a New England autumn they had never seen before. 
Now, since that first Thanksgiving, 1621, with many menu items that would probably get a thanks, but I'll pass if we were there. U.S. presidents since Washington have issued Thanksgiving proclamations. And what presidents have historically pointed out in their proclamations is what we might be in danger of forgetting today, namely our dependence on God. Here's the opening of President Grover Cleveland's Thanksgiving proclamation from 1888. Constant thanksgiving and gratitude are due from the American people to Almighty God for his goodness and mercy, which have followed them since the day he made them a nation and vouchsafed to them a free government. With loving kindness, he has constantly led us in a way of prosperity and greatness. He has not visited us with swift punishment for our shortcomings, but dealt with us with gracious care. He has warned us of our dependence upon his forbearance, has taught us that obedience to his holy law is the price of continuance of his precious gifts. President Cleveland was the son of a Presbyterian minister. He recognized in his words that constant thanksgiving and gratitude we owe almighty God for his goodness and mercy. Now, if that is true for Americans, how much more true should it be for Christians? Because Christians, above all people, should be thankful, full of constant thankfulness and gratitude to almighty God for his goodness and mercy that chase us down all the way until we reach the house of the Lord. So today, we're thinking of thanksgiving. Would you turn, please? We've, you've already been there a bit to Psalm 136. Psalm 136. As you turn to our passage in the Christian Bible, we, we're going to hear the sacred songwriter tie every blessing that we have to one thing, to the steadfast love of the Lord. There is only one explanation for everything in your life and my life. It's the steadfast love of the Lord. So the singer of Psalm 136 is going to repeat that 26 times. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. It's only six syllables in the Hebrew text, so I imagine it's easier to say. If we say the steadfast love of the Lord 26 times, we get weary of the steadfast love of the Lord saying it 26 times. But there it is, 26 times. He's confronting us. He's confronting us heading into Thanksgiving week and a long holiday season with the only thing that will last 26 times. He calls us into the arms of the only embrace that will never end. The embrace of the steadfast love of the Lord that endures forever. Do you know the steadfast love of the Lord? Thornton Wilder, most known for his play Our Town, also wrote a shorter one-act play called A Long Christmas Dinner. I think it's a lovely, haunting little play. The, it, the play captures 90 years in about an hour. In, in one hour, 90 years and one family line goes by, and it all takes place at Christmas dinner around the table. 90 years go by. 
And as the audience, we look in through an open window where we can see and hear everything. And over those 90 years, as the family gathers, they're sitting down for Christmas Day dinner. There are births. There are stories of going to college. There are marriages that gather and fill the table. There are grandchildren. There are diagnoses. And yes, there are deaths. And soon, fewer and fewer people are at the Christmas dinner. And soon, they're all gone. So yes, gather ye rosebuds while ye may. Old time is still a passing. And the same flower that smiles today, tomorrow will be dying. Enjoy the gifts of God today, now. Yes, yes. Enjoy Thanksgiving and the food and the friends and the family and all the traditions and customs that you have because they are a gift from the Lord. But soon, as some of us already know, there will be fewer and fewer people around the table and the gifts won't last forever. But the giver will last forever. The steadfast love of the Lord will endure when you're the last person at the table. The one enduring constant in life is the steadfast love of the Lord. It's not death and taxes for the Christian. For the Christian, the one thing that you can count on is not death and taxes. It's the steadfast love of the Lord. Because in your life and at your death and after your death, this will be your cry and your only cry. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever in, during, and after death. Twenty-six times the mercy of the Lord the grace of the Lord, the kindness of the Lord, the steadfast of the Lord endures forever 26 times. And thanks be to God that he gives us the Lord's Supper to remind us of that because all of us can hit our spiritual head and suffer from an acute case of spiritual amnesia. So do this in remembrance of me. And don't forget that my steadfast love endures forever. Playing on the team and coming in first place won't last forever. The glory of high school days, as Uncle Rico found out, and Napoleon Dynamite won't last forever. Your high school crush won't last forever. Neither will your dream house. Your promotion won't last forever. Your business won't be there forever. And neither will your marriage or your parents And our children will not last forever. If you soak all of your hopes in those places, in the end, your soul will shrivel up like fingertips that play in the pool too long. I think we know deep down inside that the things we are after won't last long. Maybe it's why we double down on them. More sex. Another child. A different job. Another project, another video. And we silence the sense inside that tells us this won't last, or we pretend that our desires and our family and our health will be different. Ours will last at least longer than most. The singer-songwriter Ben Rector expresses as much in a song called What is Man? He thinks of the shadow his own father cast across his life. And then he sings like this. Sometimes I wonder what they'll say of me when I am gone. Is it the things we've done, the places you've been, 
chasing down dreams you've been imagining. I'm trying to find out what makes a man. If I'm honest, I'm plagued by the fear that I'm not enough. So I work hard to measure up. I run a million miles, climbed a mountain high, and I felt the same when I was done. Is it power? Is it fame? Is it money? Is it just a game? Is it always wanting more? I'm trying to find what makes a man. Friends, this morning, if you find yourself working hard to measure up, if you've run a million miles and you've climbed a mountain high and you felt the same when you were done, that's because the gifts were never meant to last. He built them with an expiration date. Those gifts are like breadcrumbs that are meant to take you to the giver of all things where you will find the love of the Lord enduring forever. What is it the African theologian told us in his own confessions? But this, you, God, have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. So I call us all this morning to keep considering the steadfast love of the Lord. Only the steadfast love of the Lord lasts. And every trial and every triumph that you have, every gift and every grief is meant to take you into the arms of the one who made you where you hear his chest beat against the ear of your soul and his heart beats into the ear of your soul saying, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever and ever and again. It beats all the days of your life until you close your eyes and it beats again and you wake up and it's still beating because the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Listen, listen, listen. The devil will tell you sixth grader, seventh grader, third grader, kindergarten that you are too young to serve the Lord and know a steadfast love. It's a lie. Remember now the creator in your days of your youth. And he will tell you you are too old to tread in the steadfast love of the Lord. That's a lie too. The steadfast love of the Lord is better than life itself. Do you believe that? That to know Christ is better than having life itself. The steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. So this morning, we're going to think of this Psalm 136, which we're doing already. I think I just mentioned, you know, 26 times we've already talked about the steadfast love of the Lord. I'm trying to mirror what this psalm is actually doing. Now, you know the name. You know it. Have you noticed that word steadfast? We saw it last week. And the ESV, it, 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 last week in 2 Samuel 9, it's translated as kindness. We looked at 2 Samuel 9 where the undeserved kindness of God's king showed to his enemy who was crippled in his feet. And remember the words of Charles Swindoll, how the tablecloth of grace covered the crippled feet of Mephibosheth? David showed covenant kindness, covenant mercy to Mephibosheth. Well, that's the same word here in 136. Behind it, you remember, I've heard several of you say it this week. I don't know. It caught on. H-E-S-E-D. Brian mentioned it this morning. It's Hesed. It's the, it's the Lord's own character himself. The Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, abounding in kindness, abounding in steadfast love, abounding in covenant mercy, abound. Yes, yes, that's all it. That's what his heart abounds with. It's one of the most important words in the Old Testament. It's so rich 
that that one word, like your favorite Thanksgiving dessert, you can't describe it with one word. I dare you. Just try it. You can't do it. Even the various translations of the English Bible, when they come to 136, they don't always handle it the same way. The ESV has steadfast love. Others have faithful love. Still another loyal love. Another loving kindness. Still another translation just uses love. Kindness. Faithfulness. Mercy. There's the King James Version. The mercy. Give thanks to the Lord for the mercy of the Lord endures forever. And as this this songwriter riffs on that one word 26 times, he traces everything back to one thing. The secret of your life. Listen, I'm not demeaning anything, but the secret of your life is not the strength of your mother's love. It's not traced back to your tireless work ethic or your study habits. The psalmist traces everything back to everything in creation or your life to this one thing. The steadfast love of the Lord is the only explanation for everything in your life or in the world that you see. That's what you're confronted with. And now the psalm writer tells us to give thanks. And we know that because the song opens with three calls in a row. Give thanks. Give thanks. Give thanks. And when he's done singing this song, down in the end of verse 26, he repeats it again. What I'm trying to tell you, my point I want to give across to you is give thanks to the God of heaven for his steadfast love endures forever. So what's Psalm 136 about? It's a psalm calling us to give thanks. And not only does the opening, do the opening and closing of this chapter call us to give thanks, but its place in the story of the Psalter tells us that. This is a collection of five books. The five books trace the history of Israel largely through the covenant that God made with David in 2 Samuel 7. And we might think, well, I'm sure giving thanks and praise, that's all over the book, but it's not. The most common kind of song that you hear across the Psalter is somebody singing the blues. Somebody's lamenting. It's the most common type of psalm. But the largest number of songs that are praise songs don't appear in book one, two and three, but they appear here in the final book of the Psalter. Thus, the last book, book five, where this Psalm 136 is, is a summons and reminder that no matter what's happening in life, a life full of laments, read books one to three, that all of our pain will be lost in praise. That the flow of the Psalter captures the flow of Israel's history and your history too that moves from lament to praise. That means that, that, that pain is not the last note in the song. It will resolve into his steadfast love forever. That means that Psalm 136 is not blind to the sorrows of life and the empty chairs at the Thanksgiving table or the laments in the midst of Thanksgiving we heard this morning in our praise service. That's what's happening in this psalm, too. Thanking God even in the shadows. It reminds us that we sorrow, but not as those who have no hope. We can, in the words of Psalm 136, 1, give thanks to the Lord, for we know he is good. That every good Friday of your life will result in resurrection in the life to come. So we can give praise to him for grace given to face life as it really is. Psalm 136, one commentator notes, is not a recipe for praise the Lord anyway, but a profound orientation 
and reorientation around the steadfast love of the Lord no matter what. Because it endures forever. So the opening and closing of this psalm, its place in the story of the book of the Psalter, summons us to give thanks to God in all circumstances. For our circumstances are never final, no matter how final they are at this moment that they feel. We're heading for an eternal hallelujah. In fact, did you know that Psalm 136 is often called the great hallel? You know hallel because you sing hallelujah. It means give thanks. This is the great hallel in the Psalter. And it stands not by itself, but starting in Psalm 120 and going through this one, there's a collection of hallel psalms, give thanks psalms, of which Psalm 136 stands as the climax and pinnacle. Thus, it's called the great hallel, the great giving thanks psalm. Because it's the end for which you are made. And until we learn to give him thanks, We will never be living for the purpose for which he made us. We are made to give thanks to him. Now, having called us to give thanks, he's going to give us four reasons to give thanks. Now, this psalm gives us four reasons, and you can record them. Miss Layla has done a really helpful thing that's probably good for all of us to do before Thanksgiving. A through Z, she lists in this order of worship. Now think of things you can be thankful for, A through Z, and I would like to see whatever you finish by the end in this kid's order of worship. Well, first we're told in this psalm to give thanks for who he is. That's verses 1 to 3. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. That would be enough reason to give thanks to him. This should be the first word on our lips in the morning when we get up. And the last on our lips when we lie down at night and go to sleep. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. But the psalmist means he doesn't simply mean that God does good things. He doesn't mean good like that's a good person, like a nice person. But that God at the core of his being is good. Charles Spurgeon says the phrase means that God is good beyond all others. That he alone is good in the highest sense. That he's the source of good the good of all good, the sustainer of good, the perfecter of good, the rewarder of good. He is good. Give thanks to him. Give thanks also because he is the God of gods and the Lord of lords. At one level, we can step back and say, there are no other gods except God. No other beings exist. Everything else is a false idol that we prop up and we make. That's true. At another level, We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against unseen principalities and powers. There are spiritual forces in the world. There are world rulers who do harsh things. Yes, there are other powers. But in either case, he reigns as supreme. He is the God of all gods. He's the Lord of all lords. He has no rival. He is sovereign and supreme. He has no competition. He fears no power in heaven or in earth more than you fear the power of a plastic action figure that can make little noises. He is the God of gods and he's the Lord of lords. And to know him is to come into the mercy of the Lord that endures forever. Give thanks to him for who he is. He's good. Second, give thanks to the Lord as our creator. That's verses four to nine. 
we read this part together and it describes all the actions of the Lord in creation come down to this one word. It's the word wonder. There it's in the text. Now, I remember back in the day uh, learning this Hebrew vocab word like this. I could pronounce the word. I pronounce this word as Pele. And it reminded me of the great Brazilian soccer player Pele. And I would think what Pele did with the ball was a cause for wonder. And nobody could do what Pele could do. His moves were a cause for wonder. That's the word here. It means that God's moves, his actions cause wonder. Pele, wonder, amazement. And in creating the world, as the song says, in creating every galaxy, microbe, and hill, it shows intelligent design. The songwriter says he made it by understanding, with skill, with wisdom he made the heavens. There are marks of beauty and symmetry and simplicity and complexity and order and redundancy, as Jonathan Edwards said. The creation is made with a beautiful redundancy. They they all dot his creation. You can hike the woods. You can take a walk under the stars. You can be on a ship at sea and behold his wonders. And having praised the Lord, he says, who made the heavens. Now the poet describes what he sees in the heavens. He spreads out the earth like a tablecloth above the ocean. Then he hangs the great chandeliers in the sky, the sun and the moon. And the sun rules like a king over the day. And the moon reigns like a queen over the night. And both lights are so bright that you turn your flashlight flashlight off when the sun shines. It shines with radiant splendor, lighting the earth and all other lights go out. Your motion sensor light, that light that shines on your front porch, it goes out when the sun comes out. It puts out every other light. It rules the day. And the moon does too. Much of this past month at night, I take my dog Dallas on a walk and our neighborhood is dark. And we go on this trail and I take a light, a flashlight, And I look like a dork and I put a headlight on because I can't see. And I do this and I take the dog on a walk and I'm taking the dog on a walk. And at one point I say, they put spotlights up on this point in the trail. When did they do that? And I turn to the side and it's not a spotlight made by human hands. It's the spotlight of the full moon. And I turn my flashlight off and I turn my headlamp off and I see fine from the silver glow of the moon lighting up the path. It rules the night. And when you see it, you say, That's the steadfast love of the Lord ruling in the night. Oh, how beautiful his care is. And as constant and as strong and sovereign as the sun and the moon are that rule the day and the night. Wait till you see our maker, the sun and the moon say. We only reflect his glory. We are the instruments. He is the song. Look at the steadfast love of the Lord as created. As I came around one hill where I walk at night, man, the air was, it got finally cold and really crispy. 
and it had rained and the air was clear and it's a clear crisp night and it's chilly and I should have had a coat on, but I didn't. And I'm glad I didn't because I felt the chill and the sky is velvet black. And as I come around the hill through the trees, there it is. Stars arranged, not just randomly, but in so many constellations that I can't name many of them. And I certainly can't name them all. But there they are in a beautiful order in the sky that's always there, but you see it best at night. And though the stars are there, I actually thought maybe this is an affront to the Lord, but I thought it reminds me like a recessed lighting that God put in the ceiling of the sky. And that recessed lighting is not simply functional and utilitarian and practical, but it's light that invokes awe and wonder, beauty and order. He just he's just not pragmatic. He's a beautiful God and his works cause wonder. God is Mark Devine said when he was here, made Becky and I meditate a few times since. And he described from Genesis God as a homemaker. Every day God made, he declared it good. He made it in wisdom as a master builder, as a master craft home, custom home builder. And every day that God left the job site, in a sense, every day he said, now that's good. But then God made man and woman in a sense. He made the man and woman. And then in a sense, what does he do? But he places them into their new home, into the garden. And only after he takes the man and woman and he places it now into their custom built home, only after that moment does he say, now this is very good. What happened? Yes, God made the world to declare his glory. But as a homemaker, God made the world good for us to live in. He built a perfect home and he did not center the designs of this perfect custom home. He did not center it around plants and animals. God, the homemaker, centered his designs around man and woman. He custom built the earth for man and woman, making this world hospitable to us, welcoming to us, enjoying for us. And when he had made the best home with stars as recessed lighting and oceans for backyard pools and mountains in the place of granite countertops and taste buds that he dotted our tongues with and HD color for eyes to enjoy. Then he said, now you're welcome to go into your house. And then you read the Psalms and he says, I thought I told you to taste and see that I'm good. I'm the homemaker who's made this home for you. God in Genesis is the homemaker, the ultimate giver of hospitality, whose hospitality for us in this wide world makes any kind of southern hospitality looks like a shady rundown hotel lobby next to what he's done to say, welcome to your home. Behold the steadfast love of the Lord. What a home God, the homemaker, has made for us. And in Titus, here's what's interesting. In particular, Paul singles out ladies as particularly gifted in homemaking, making places, inviting. God is an intelligent, welcoming, wise, wonderful homemaker. And I think Paul says women image that intrinsically better than men do. Homemaking. What a beautiful world he's given to us. Do you remember that scene in It's a Wonderful Life? 
when George, now which scene, you say? Which scene in It's a Wonderful Life? <laughs> He's riding off into the honeymoon with his new bride, Mary. Mary, Mary. There's a run at the bank and they can't go. It's going to happen again. While George is trying to keep the bank from shutting down, Mary valiantly comes up with the idea on her own to give money to keep the bank from going under. Then as George is trying to settle everybody's debts and calm everybody's fear, Mary sneaks off and she goes to work in the rain on making that old run-down drafty house into a home. And when George Bailey comes stumbling in exhausted, Mary says, welcome home. Now this is an aside, but you know who the real hero of It's a Wonderful Life is? It's Mary. It's a view of womanhood that's often overlooked and neglected in the world today that women only have value if they can beat up bad guys and break their necks. But in Proverbs 31, and it's a wonderful life, I mean it. She's the hero who holds the whole thing together as a homemaker, in a sense, who brings her gifts from afar. And what's the point? As a creator, the stars, the earth, the moon, your taste, everything shows God in his steadfast love as creator. He's good. Give thanks for his character. Give thanks that he's a creator. Here's the third reason. He's our redeemer. Now, here's the heart of the song. The Lord is not only our maker, but our redeemer. And the sweetest and loudest note, Spurgeon says in the chorus, must always be reserved for the person who sings of redeeming love. I'm going to read it. You say it silently when we get to each stanza. We didn't read this part yet. So would you look at it with me in Psalm 136 and verse 10? To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, for a steadfast love endures forever. And brought Israel out from among them, for a steadfast love endures forever. He brought them out with a strong hand and outstretched arm, for a steadfast love endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea in two, for a steadfast love endured forever. And made Israel pass through the midst of it, for a steadfast love endures forever. But overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the sea, for a steadfast love endures forever. To him who led his people through the wilderness, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down great kings, for his steadfast love endures forever. He killed mighty kings, for his steadfast love endures forever. Like Sihon, king of the Amorites, for his steadfast love endures forever. And Og, king of Bashan, for his steadfast love endures forever. And he gave their land as a heritage for a steadfast love endures forever. As a heritage to Israel, his servant for a steadfast love endures forever. Now you think of each one of those vignettes. He remembers how God broke the power of the Pharaoh of Egypt and rescued them from slavery. And he, he, he struck down the firstborn son with a strong arm and an, and an outstretched hand. And the Red Sea stood like two concrete barriers keeping the water back as he, as he led them through and he overthrows the most powerful warlord in the region. He redeemed his people with power. And verses 16 to 21, having redeemed them, he preserves them in the wilderness and then killed warlord kings like Sihon and Og. Or maybe we would say Hitler and Pol Pot, but I would say keep it as Sihon and Og. Their names are as terrible as they really were. He threw down Sihon and Og. Don't forget God did that. Big, bad kings reduced to dust. 
And he kept his promise to Abraham and Joshua and David. And he gave them the land of Sihon and Og and said, eat and be merry. Give thanks to the Lord as our Redeemer. And we know, of course, in the flow of the Bible, that the the, the Red Sea redemption points to our redemption at the cross. We had been redeemed, Spurgeon writes, from the power of our corruptions, uplifted from the depth of sin, which we were naturally plunged into. We've been led to the cross of Christ. Our shackles of guilt have been broken off and we're no longer slaves, but children of the living God. As a song I grew up singing. Maybe you remember it. I don't know. Redeemed how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the lamb. Redeemed and so happy in Jesus, his child and forever I am. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And when we come to this table, we remember what He's done that we, yes, you, but we could be forgiven. That that this cup reminds us when we take it, the price paid to free us from our lack of gratitude. That the blood of God's firstborn Son, His only Son, that we were so bad that God's firstborn Son had to die. And you know the other part is true, that we were so loved that God's firstborn son not had to die, but he wanted to die. This bread, too, reminds us of the body of Christ that bore our sins, that paid the penalty for our sins, that we can be forgiven. Now, not always. I know not always. But sometimes in our culture, we can minimize responsibility for people's actions by telling us that it's a result of this or that. It's a result of your background. It's a result of your trauma. It's a result of whatever. But there's sometimes little room for personal responsibility or to see sin as an aggravating source to what's happened in your life. Now, those kinds of explanations might help to a degree, but they will do nothing with the real objective guilt for certain thoughts and matters that we have before God. And the only way around guilt is to own it and to confess it and cry out to Jesus who was punished in his body for our guilt that we might have peace. Guilt is not simply a subjective emotion that you have. It's an objective state that you are in if you are not right with God at any level. And when we take the bread, we remember that his body bore the real punishment for my real guilt, every bit of my guilt. And that his blood paid the penalty, the debt of my sin, All of it. That's why this is a thanksgiving table. A thanksgiving table. That his love endures forever. Finally, give thanks to the Lord that he's our personal provider. I put it that way. I don't know how you'd put it as you'd look at this song. But in every other part of the psalm, the singer speaks of God in a sense at a distance. He did this for them. He did this for his people. He did this for them. He did this for his people. But now in this final stanza, he switches to third person to us. Look at verses 23 and 25. It is he who remembered us and our low estate for his steadfast love endures forever. He rescued us from our foes for his steadfast love endures forever. He who gives food to all flesh for his steadfast love endures forever. I see here the Lord being celebrated here, not just as our creator, not just as our Redeemer, but having created us and having made us, He's our personal provider. Remember not them, but remember us. 
Here is no deistic conception of God that many of America's founding fathers believe that God is powerful. He's a clock winder, but he left it alone. Neither is God a faceless, impersonal immensity like Muslims believe. No, no, this is a God who remembers us, who rescues us, who gives food to all flesh. Can I put it this way? At the end of this psalm, you have the God of the incarnation. He remembered our low estate by taking upon himself our low estate. He came in the likeness of human flesh and he rescued us by being born of a virgin under the law to rescue all those who are under the law so it can be finally said, he has remembered our low estate. Now you step back. Can't you add your voice to this song? Aren't we a a church full of people who've seen this about the Lord, that the Lord is good? Are we not a room full of people who, who, who better than I have in better ways than I have that this beautiful fall season hasn't your heart been drawn out to him in some way where you don't even know what to say or you just say, oh, or whatever. Hasn't your heart been drawn out by the beauty of the Lord? And are we not a room full of people above everything else that we are a room not full of good people, but we are a room full of forgiven people? People washed by the blood of the Lamb who've been forgiven for our worst sins. The thoughts that we have repeatedly that we struggle with that no one knows. Yes, forgiven for that. We know the redeeming love of the Lord, not just as in Him creator, but as a redeemer. And can't we then say, give thanks to the Lord for He is good. And now He's remembered us and He calls us to this table so that we can feed by faith on the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's one explanation for your life or my life. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever.